0: to kind of combined last week's Father's Day and what Dane has been doing with the Old Testament characters. And so I want to talk today about God as being our Father. Okay, Even when we look at the Old Testament characters, as he's highlighted some great people of faith, the hero of each of those stories is actually God. It's what God did through those people. Now, they were open to him, and they were willing to allow God to work in their lives, and that's where they show great benefit in partnership with God. But God is the one who did it through them. And so I want us to think about God and God as our Father. And just I haven't done anything like this, I prepared anything like it until about a week and a half ago. And I just wanted to look at God in a more of a systematic way, and just look at some of his major characteristics and just think about him and what he is like. So you're going to hear some things you've maybe heard before, but you heard a little bit here and a little bit there and a little here. I want to kind of pull it together. Now, before I get into that, there's a couple of statements I want to make. And one is I love the, the, the creed that we say. It's a beautiful song. It's powerful. I believe in God the Father. And I just wanted to throw in something because there's, there's a place in there about the Trinity, about the Godhead. I believe in God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, some people like the Muslims and the, the, the Jews and the Jehovah's Witnesses and other groups think that we're polytheistic. They say you believe in three gods, not one. You say, well, how can that be? and say, well, we believe in the Trinity, but who knows how to really navigate that and figure that out. But here's just something I want you to chew on at some time when you're thinking about this. They think of it as being three gods because you have Father, Son, and Spirit. One plus one plus one equals three, right? But I'd have you think about it from multiplication, a synergy. One times one times one equals one. Mathematically, So you can have three entities and still have one. So if that's true mathematically, it's certainly true spiritually. It's certainly true in believing God the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not a contradiction that the three are one, because three can be one mathematically. So I just want you to chew on. That has nothing to do with my sermon, other than it's talking about God, our Father, right? Okay. So thinking about fathers, I of course go back to think about my dad. My, my dad was an immigrant to the United States. He came from Italy. He was actually born in Palermo, Sicily. I have family connections, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I not only have God the Father on our side, I have the Godfather as well. <laughs> All right, so better look out. I, I just call him Guido whenever I need a job done. Hey, yeah. okay. So my dad came over as a child with his parents. And um, I never met my grandparents. They both died before I was born. And my dad had to quit school in the third grade. He only went to the third grade. And then he went to work. He worked 12 hours a day, six days a week, made a dollar a day. I think he's one of the reasons for the child labor laws from way, way back. Okay? Okay. And, but yet he believed in education. As an adult, he did get his GED. As an adult, he did take some college classes. He learned through his life five languages. He could speak five languages, even though he only went formally to the third grade. Uh, I have some law books in my library that were his. He devoured those law books. He knew law as well as any lawyer. Just couldn't practice it because he never went to school. He couldn't get a bar, pass a bar exam because of that. But it didn't mean he didn't know something and, and learn something. And, and my dad always had these little sayings. You, you ever think about your dad? You ever have those things that kind of repeat it over and over again? Just, you know, I kind of get it, dad. All right, okay. But it sticks in your head. And through all these years, it, it sticks to my head. One is everything has a place. He, he was very particular. You know, use a tool, use it, fine, put it back where it belongs because it has its place. And everything has its place. It's your keys. It's your money. It's the dishes. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, it has its place. And that way, you don't have to have a good memory. It's always where it's supposed to be, right? If you lay things here and there, then you say, "Where did I leave that?" Because you've left it all kinds of different places. So that's kind of served me well. Although I I have this little thing. I'm a little O.C. Not O.C.D. But a little O.C. And I'll go to some place because I don't always do this, all right? So nobody's perfect in this. Everything has a place, but I don't always do that. So I'll go to where whatever it is supposed to be, and it's not there, and I I can't believe it's not there. It's supposed to be there. And so I look around for a while, still can't find it. And I'll go back to the same place and look at the place to see why isn't it there? It's supposed to be there because everything has its place. He also had this little saying. He says, you work hard, you rest hard, and you play hard. He was a driven person. You work hard, you rest hard, and you play hard. And then I became a Christian. I said, what do I do with that, Dad? And he said, then pray hard. Okay? So those are things that have kind of stuck in my mind, many, many others. But thinking about my earthly father, my heavenly father has some things to say as well. Now, but before I go on, I've got a couple of my own little sayings. Here's my latest one. You can't forget to do what you've already done. You can't forget to do what you've already done, right? Now, you might forget that you did it, <laughs> but you can't forget to do it because you've already done it. So just get her done, right? Just get her done, get it done, and then you don't have – because a lot of times we mean to do something, we forget to do it. Or because we thought about it, we think that we did it, but we didn't do it, right? You ever have that? So just, just get her done. You can't forget to do what you haven't done. But then as this will fit more into my sermon <laughs> whatever's been assumed long enough will soon enough be forgotten whatever is assumed long enough will soon enough be forgotten Uh, Alan, you you touched on that in your devotion, I thought, talking about communion. You assume long enough what it is. It's what we we do this every week. You know, we, we know it's the body and blood of Jesus. We assume we know that, but soon enough we really forget what the deep meaning of it is. And today I want to talk about some things of God that we kind of know, but we assume them long enough, we soon enough forget them and forget how meaningful, how powerful, how wonderful they truly are. So with that in mind, I'd like for us to talk about God, our Father, and I want to talk about some different aspects of him. One goes back to uh, his very position, that he is the creator. In Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, in the big inning, God created baseball. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you knew baseball was mentioned in the Bible, right? In the big inning. No, no. no it says, In the beginning... God created the heaven and the earth. In our creation, our, he's our creator. God has created everything that there is. Everything, every aspect of life. He, the, the magnificence of the human body and how it functions, God created that. The beautiful creation that we have, whether it's part of the desert or the mountains or the ocean, whether it's the forest, God has made all of that. If we look in the sky, you ever look on the Internet and see some, some pictures of the universe? You see these nebulae and the beautiful formations and the colors of them? God has created the universe. There, there is no end to his creation and who he is. He is the creator. And we know that, but let, let's not just assume it, because soon enough we'll forget that he created everything and he's given us life. He's also the sovereign. I want to read a passage in First, Second Timothy. Excuse me, First Timothy, six fifteen. It says this: God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, and who lives an unapproachable life. God alone is immortal. Nobody else is eternal. Now, from our perspective, it's eternal past and eternal in the future. From God's perspective, just eternal. He is eternal, but he is the king of kings. There is no king on earth that is greater than God. There is no dictator on earth that is greater than God. There is no president on earth who is greater than God. And I'm not minimizing the importance of those people in those positions, But what I'm trying to say is that sometimes humans think that they're a lot bigger than what they really are. And that God is really a lot bigger than what we often give him credit for and think about. He is the sovereign. He's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one and only God. Secondly, we want to talk about his title. We use the word God. And God is really not his name, it's his title, it's how we describe him. And I I have on the the screen, if you go to the next one, please, three different languages for God. There you go. Hebrew. Uh, Dane actually gave me some Hebrew books to take back to school today. I put them in my car. In Hebrew, the word for God is Elohim. There there are many, actually, words for God, but that's the first one in Genesis 1-1. That it's, so, God in Hebrew is Elohim. So, people who speak Hebrew don't say God. They say Elohim. But by Elohim, they mean God. People who speak in Arabic use the word Allah. Now, when you and I hear Allah, automatically we think of Islam, right? And we think of Muslims. Well, the only reason for that is because you know most of those folks are are Arabic, and they speak Arabic, and the Arabic word for God is Allah. I have... Arabic Israeli pastor friends. I like to call them Palestinian pastors. They don't like that term because it's so loaded, but they are. They're they're Palestinian and they're pastors. That seems like a contradiction to our mind, right? But it's it's true. They're, They're people of Arab descent who are Palestinians who are believers in Jesus and they're pastors of churches in northern Israel. And when they read their Bible in Arabic in the New Testament, it says Allah. Because all Allah is is Arabic for God. And then we have Greek, which is the word theos, from which we get theology. Haven't you ever wondered why we don't call the study of God Godology? You know, I mean, it's the study of God. Well, it is, except it's Greek. You know a lot more Greek than what you realize that you knew, okay? And one of those words is theology, which comes from theos, which means the study of God. So those are God is simply his title. It's who he is because he is sovereign and he is creator. He is God, but it really doesn't tell us exactly who he is other than he is a supreme being. So what do we find out? Well, let me read one passage before I go on. It's in 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, verses 4 through 6. And it says this. <clears throat> We all know that an idol is nothing, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom all live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. There is only one God, even though there are many gods. The Hindus have millions of gods. And so, in one sense, they are gods, but they're with a small g. But there's only one god with a capital G. Now, even in our culture, where we don't have like the we have some Hindu people, certainly, but within our culture, most people believe in a capital G, but we still have idols. Many people have idols in their life. It might be pleasure, it might be money, it might be success, it might be whatever it is that puts that item In front of God. And so there are many gods, but those gods are of no avail. They have no real power influence. There is but one God, God our Father, again, who we sang about a little bit earlier. So let's talk about his name. His name, at least in Hebrew, is Yahweh or Jehovah. And you say, well, which one is it? Well, it's a very interesting phenomenon that in Hebrew they only have consonants. They don't have vowels. They have vowel sounds, but only consonants when they write. So the name of God has four letters, and depending on what vowel sounds you put up, put with it, it can be Yahweh or Jehovah. And you say, well, why don't you know? Well, we don't know because only the high priest said God's name. He said it only once a year, and only in the Holy of Holies. The Jewish people would not say God's name. When they came across the text where Yahweh or Jehovah is, they would insert a different word. They would insert Adonai, which means my Lord. Because they did not want to mispronounce God's name. They did not want to take God's name in vain. In our culture, all the time, people say, oh, my God. In the Jewish culture, they would never say that because they'd be afraid of taking God's name by just throwing, oh, my God, oh, my Yahweh. No, no, they would say, Adonai, my, my Lord, you see. So that's why we don't know how to pronounce it, but... We do know what that word means. It means I am. You remember when Moses finds God in this burning bush, and he says, who should I say sent me? And he said, tell him I am sent you. What? What kind of name is that? Well, because the word Yahweh or Jehovah comes from the verb to be. And isn't that a great name for God, the everlasting one? He is being. He is existing. He is. He be. He be. It's not very good English, but it's good theology. God Bees. He always Bees. He always is. He always has been and He always will be. That's what His name means. So His name is Yahweh Jehovah in Hebrew. And it simply means I am. I am existence. I am life. I am everlasting one. Well, we go on and we think about some more in regard to Him. We think of His characteristics. When we talk about God... We, we use the, the word omni, and then we have some fancy words, and I'm going to make them more simple. Omni simply means uh, all or every. And so how is God understood? He's omnipresent. God is everywhere present. He is everywhere at the same time. He is here with us in this building in Victorville. He's with people in China. God is down at Antarctica in the South Pole. God is with people in Iraq. He's there. God is out on Mars. I kind of imagine him getting on the rover and kind of riding around, you know, Mars. He's out in Pluto. He's out into the, the closest star in the universe, which is light years away. Can, can you even begin to imagine how far a light year is? 180,000 miles per second, times all, you know, To minutes, an hour, it's crazy. But God is there as well. He's omnipresent. He is also all-knowing. God knows everything. That's kind of scary. (laughs) He knows everything that you thought. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you've done. He knows every aspect of this universe. God is all-knowing. He knows everything. He's all-powerful. God can do whatever he chooses to do because he is God. He spoke a word and creation came to being. Let there be light. And there was light. He took the darkness. He took the, 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 the voidness of creation and then he just spoke order into it and he spoke light into it. God is powerful. Now, thankfully... God has limited his power, because if he didn't, we would all be dead. So the all-powerful one has given us an example of limiting that which he possesses. He's also all good and holy. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. And as a little side note, just to say that Jesus, when he became a human being, put the omnis aside. He could no longer be omnipresent. He couldn't be everywhere present. He could only be in one place at one time. He wasn't all knowing. You say, "Well, yeah, he's Jesus." No, remember in Matthew twenty-four and Mark thirteen, they're the same passage or parallel passages. They, the apostles ask him, "When you coming back?" He says, "I don't know." What do you mean you don't know? You're Jesus. You know everything. Well, apparently, he didn't know everything. That didn't affect his divinity. It just showed how human he was. That's a whole other discussion. But he limited his knowledge when he became a human being. He even limited his power. Now, we know he did miracles, and that, but that's when he's 30. Did he do that when he was three? Well, the Scripture doesn't tell us. I suppose it's possible, but I don't think it's very likely that he did that. He emptied himself of his omnis. And I even put up there that he emptied himself of his the goodness in the sense that Jesus was tempted. And if he couldn't have sinned, then there wasn't, no, there wasn't a temptation anyway. But he put those aside, but he gained them all back. He grew up in all those. He resurrected to show that he's ascended. And now he is truly all those omnis again. God is all present. He is all knowing. He is all powerful. He is all good and holy. You're a good, good father, right? He's all goodness. All right, let's go on to his nature. In 1 John, the fourth chapter and the eighth verse, in my opinion, kind of summarizes the nature of God when it says this, Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. And he showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son in the world that we might live through him. God's very nature is love, not a wimpy type of love, a tough love, a love that has high expectation, a a love that is willing even to discipline, a love that is so extreme that he would send his son to this earth to die a horrendous, murderous death. But that shows the extension of his love. The cross is an indication of the love of God because that is his very nature, full of grace, full of justification. We've been counted not guilty because of what Christ has done on the cross. We are guilty, but he counts us not guilty because he loves us through Christ. But we want to be in Christ. (laughs) There was a famous preacher back in the 1700s. His name was Jonathan Edwards. And he had a sermon that I actually preached once. I did a a series of sermons of uh, preachers from way past. And this one sermon is, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he said, it's a terrible thing to be in the hands of an angry God. Because he'll be holding you over the pit of hell, waiting to drop you into that fiery lake to burn forever. Whoa. Whoa. God is a God of love, but we need to respond to that love because it is a fearful thing to be in the hands of an angry God. But God isn't against us. He is for us. But he does have wrath. Listen to these words in Romans, the second chapter, verses 5 through 8. That even though he he is love and he expresses love, he also does have anger and he does have wrath. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, for God does not show favoritism. So God is a God of love, that's his nature, so that when he disciplines, he does it out of love. When he judges, he does it out of love so that we become the kinds of people that we ought to be. But if we do not respond to that love, all that remains left is the anger and wrath because the soul that sins shall die. But because Jesus died on the cross for us, we don't have to because he took our place. God is limited, however. Look with me, if you will, to Hebrews, the sixth chapter. And verse 18. Hebrews 6, 18 says this. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie. So is there anything God can't do? Yes, he can't lie. Some people have tried to debate. In fact, the the rabbis had all these debates. They would have a debate as to how many angels could dance on the head of a a pin. (laughs) Can you imagine debating that? I mean, who who, who can determine how many angels can be on the head of the pin? It's, It's kind of ridiculous. And so, and then people say, well, can God make a rock so heavy that he can't pick it up? And you see, it's kind of a trick question. You know, if he can't do, if he can't make that kind of rock, he's not all powerful. And if he can't pick it up, he's not all powerful. So, how do you get with God? But to get, you know, understand an all powerful God if there's some things he can't do, well, the fact is there are some things he can't do. He can't lie. He will not lie. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. My word is truth. The truth shall set you free. And then we look at James, the first chapter, verses 13 and 14. And it says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, But each one is tempted when by his own desire he is dragged away and enticed. God cannot sin. God cannot be tempted by evil. Now, let me go back to Jesus. You see where Jesus gave up his omnis because he was tempted. Here it says God can't be, but he's God. But remember, he's God in the flesh. So as a human being, he could be tempted, though he did not sin. But God cannot, the Father cannot even be tempted because he's a holy God. It's his nature, his nature of love, his nature of holiness, makes it impossible. And I think this verse also implies, and this is a very debatable point, and it's okay if you disagree with me, where I think that God does not violate human will. He said, we're lured and enticed by our own desire. He doesn't make us do anything. He encourages us. Sometimes he gets a proverbial two-by-four, smacks us right between the eyes, Sometimes he gives us a nice little kick in the behind to get us going, so he's always prodding and trying to get us going, but he's not going to make us do what we choose not to do. We have that free will. I think it's impossible for God to do that because he's love, and love necessitates allowing people to make their own choice. There's a beautiful painting by a man by the name of Holman Hunt. It's a painting of Jesus standing at the door beautifully decorated door and he's knocking on this door, but as you look at it closely, there's no handle on the outside of the door. And what Holman Hunt was depicting was the human heart. That Jesus is standing at the door of the human heart, but there's no handle on the outside where he can grab it and walk in, but rather it can only be opened by the inside as you invite him in once he knocks on your heart. When I was a youth pastor many years ago, I was a youth pastor once upon a time, when I was a youth pastor many years ago, my preaching pastor would say this: two things that stuck with me. One is the scarlet blood—excuse me—the scarlet thread of the blood of Jesus is woven from Genesis to Revelation. I love that saying: the scarlet thread of the blood of Jesus is woven from Genesis to Revelation. But he also made this statement, and I've used it a lot through the years because I really liked it as well. He says, my God is a gentleman. He will not force his way into your life. But he's standing at your heart's door knocking, hoping that you will open it up and invite him in. God does not violate our free will because he's a God of love. Then one more area that I want to talk about. Is his views. Now, I, I had to use his because everywhere through this, it's his, but it's not really God's views. It's our views about him, okay? But I kept the his going, so I just have to qualify a little bit. It's not his views. But Baylor University did a very interesting study. I think it's interesting. And in that, they questioned people throughout the United States about their view of God, so that when you hear God, what do you think of? And they found out that people have one of four views of God when the word God is used. And about a fourth of the people in the country have each of those views 22%, maybe 28%, but ballpark, everybody, 25% of each of these views. So when you say God, some people think of an authoritative God. And that authoritative God is that he's the authority, he makes judgments, he's involved. We're talking about Hurricane Harvey. People that have authoritative view would say God caused that to happen, to make a judgment, to wake people up, and he, he, he did that for a reason. A tsunami, an earthquake, whatever, God is involved in life, and he brings some judgments in life because he is the authority. Other people, when they hear the name God, just the word God, they think of a benevolent God. That God is love, that he's on our side, and he's caring for us, and he's a shepherd, he's concerned, and he's there with us. And so their primary view, and and this is something I want to make clear, is that nobody fits 100% into one of these categories. We're often a little bit of each, but we're looking at the primary look. And that's what I'd like you to think about, that is God primarily authoritative in your life, or is he primarily benevolent, as I've described it? Others would say he's critical. That when he looks at this world, as he looks at me, he's pretty critical. But he has kind of a hands-off type of view, and he's going to make things right someday. And then there is another view that God is distant. That he made the world, and he let it kind of run itself. It's like, you, some of you may remember the old clocks, the wind-up clocks, you know. You had to do it every 24 hours. And then, so you wind it up, and then you let it unwind. He said, well, that's what God did with the world. He wound up the world he created it, and he's just letting it run itself to, to do whatever it's going to do, let people do whatever they're going to do. So a fourth of the people, when they hear God, think of authoritative God. fourth of the people in the United States think of a benevolent. A fourth think of God as being critical, and a fourth think of him as being distant. So one thing that I'd like for you to think about is which one of those is mostly how I view God. And also to be aware that when you're talking to somebody about God, you just throw a God, you don't really necessarily know what they're thinking. So you may, And they don't know what you're thinking. So you might say, when I think of God, this is what I think. When, I, when you hear the word God, what do you think? Then maybe you can communicate at the same level instead of like this. Because if you have one view and they have another view, the, the twain don't meet. And you mean something else by God. So it's something to think about. So how do we pull this all together? What is our response to these few thoughts? And this is not exhaustive in whatever time I've taken, a half an hour, it's pretty difficult to talk about God in much detail. I could take each one of those categories and talk a half an hour, an hour to really dig into it. But what is our response to be? Number one is to know about God. You know, it's a good thing for us to think about God. It'll never get dull, and it'll never get done. Because <laughs> you can never understand an infinite God, but it's worth our while to think about the nature of God and what we think about him. But more importantly than that, as important as I think that is, is that we need to know God. So today my purpose is not just for you to know about God, as I've talked about these different areas, but for us to be challenged to say, I want to know God. And I can know God through creation. We can leave this building and we can see his creation and we can know something about the nature of God and his creation we can know something about God through other people because people have God living within them, right? We, we, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Those of us who accepted Christ have God within us. And as we relate to other people who have God in them, we then can also know something about the nature of God through other people. We can know about God through Scripture. Whatever has been assumed long enough will soon enough be forgotten. We know we ought to read our Bibles. None of us are as consistent as we think we should be, Right? We both kind of try, and we do our best, but sometimes we don't even want to do it. I'd rather look at the baseball scores and, than read Bible verses, right? That, that's me. How about you? i to read something else, okay? So we struggle with that, but if we go back to Scripture, we'll, as we look at it more and more, we're going to find out and get to know God because he reveals himself. But he reveals himself most of all through the person of Jesus, I saw a little video this morning before we came to church. My wife had it, and it was Stephen Colbert talking to Oprah Winfrey. And he says, whenever I see and hear the words of Jesus, they just speak. They just jump off the page at me. They just speak. They just jump off the page as if he's speaking directly to me because he is. And I thought, how powerful. It actually brought tears to my eyes. I said, that's a powerful commentary say that whenever I look at the words or read the words or hear the words of Jesus, God is speaking to me. I know something about the nature of God through Jesus. What would God say if he was here on earth? Or just what did Jesus say? What would God do if he, he was here on earth? What did Jesus do? I get to know God through Jesus. And so he's the hero of every Old Testament story. But people have to respond. And that's why the people of great faith to say, I want to be used by God because I want to know God. And I hope today that we've taken a few moments to think about God our Father and who He is. And that we would leave this place with a a decision to know Him better and better. And to make Him known to those we come in contact with. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You uh, for your presence in our life. And you are an awesome God, and you are so beyond us, we can't even comprehend you very fully at all. We, we know some things. We talked about some of those things today. But even in the midst of that, there's still a lot of questions, a lot of things we don't understand. But we do know that you're a God of love. We do know that you revealed yourself in Jesus. We do know that you have an eternity plan for us. And I pray that you'd help us to know you better, to make you known better as we live our lives for you. Bless this church. Bless this ministry here. Pray for your glory. Amen. Please stand and join us for our closing song.